Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The evacuations in Afghanistan have been the biggest ongoing story of the week, and President Biden has condemned the ISIS-K suicide bombings in Kabul that killed at least 13 U.S. service members, over 60 Afghans, and injured many more. He also vowed to hunt them down and make them pay. We're also seeing the CIA and other troops conducting missions outside of Kabul to extract Americans before the August 31st deadline. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Jessica Donati, reporter at the Wall Street Journal and author of Eagle Down, the last special forces fighting the forever war. We are hearing that there were at least two blasts at one of the main gates for getting into the airport, one of the gates that has been the most crowded. The U.S. and other foreign nations have taken to bringing in people from different gates. And so it's not clear to me whether this gate was ever going to open. Uh, And unfortunately, the people targeted were most likely some of the most uh, vulnerable Afghans. And even as the area was hit, there were still evacuations continuing throughout all of this. When we last heard from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, he said there was around 1,500 American citizens that were waiting to be evacuated. And they've been in contact with all of them. That's what they said. But you know, that's still a lot of people, obviously, as we hit that deadline. And recently you, you wrote an article talking about how the CIA and other U.S. troops were conducting these missions outside of the airport to help extract Americans and Afghan allies. How's that been going? One of the biggest problems has been getting people into the airport. Once uh, you get through the Taliban checkpoints, you have to then get through a checkpoint run by uh, elite Afghan forces, and then you get through to the Marines. And so it's an incredibly difficult process where even if you are an Afghan with an approved visa, the Taliban might not let you through. The uh, Afghan security forces may not have your name. And then the chances of the Marines out there spotting you because you're wearing the right type of clothing, there's just hundreds of people who fit, uh, who, who could come in, but they just aren't able to do it. So what's been happening is that these teams have been going out and rescuing people from rallying points around the city. So they'll get clusters of people to show up in, say, a hotel or in a safe house, and uh, they'll be picked up there. But this is really just uh, the sort of lucky minority of people, because there's still hundreds of people from all sorts of different organizations with valid documents who are unable to get through. And how are these operations being conducted? I mean, there's uh, helicopters being flown into you know, makeshift landing zones. One of them was at the Baron Hotel, which is where we suspect that one of these bombings happened. I've been to the Baron Hotel many times and I was I was living in Afghanistan for, for more than four years. It's not very far from the airport and so you could see how a helicopter would fly over there. It's not too far away. It's got plenty of space. It's, it's quite heavily secured. It's not the first time it's been bombed. So if the bombing happened, that's still to be confirmed. The more um, sort of uh, interesting cases of these rescues are people going out, people with the CIA or with uh, the U.S. military, 
going out in uh, local clothes and trying to sort of pass for locals to be able to get people inside the airport. And those are happening from rallying points that are further away from the Baron Hotel. One of the problems that they have with flying uh, helicopters over the city is that there's a risk of them getting shot down. And if they do, then they don't want to Black Hawk Down scenario where they didn't have to rescue U.S. service members in the middle of the city. So they're very, very cautious with flying overhead. As I mentioned at the beginning, you wrote a book called Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. You were in Afghanistan uh, talking to these special forces soldiers who were really kind of the last bastion there as all of this drawdown was starting to begin. What did you learn from those forces? And, and, and if you have had any contact with them since all of this has been happening. How do they feel about the situation unfolding right now? Sure. I mean, I keep in close contact with a, with a lot of the guys that were part of the book. And uh, to, unfortunately, to any soldier that has deployed to Afghanistan with the special opera- in the, the special operations community in recent years, none of what has happened is surprising. The book explains how uh, since about 2015, the U.S. special operations has been keeping the Taliban from capturing major cities, and important territory. And so the removal of those special operations forces is what caused the rest of the Afghan army to collapse because until then they were depending on these special forces to come into cities, help the Afghan commandos, call in airstrikes, get um, intelligence support, logistics support, all sorts of things that you need to keep an army running over the Afghan terrain. And so pulling them out very swiftly caused the country to collapse. And many of them are very uh, angry about what has happened, Um, especially, I think, with the way that the drawdown has been handled, because it was predictable and this chaotic, really desperate scenes at the airport could have been avoided. When the Taliban moved in, I mean, they moved in pretty quickly and Afghan forces seemingly just gave up. In your contact with the special forces, you know, that you worked with through the book and all, did they feel that same way that, you know, the Afghan forces were just going to fold, you know, without their presence there? It's a very complicated theme. I mean, on one hand, Afghan soldiers and police have been dying in far higher numbers than the U.S. If you think about the number of casualties the U.S. has had in 20 years about deaths, it's around 2,500. And Afghans suffer two or three times as many casualties every year. So I think... What you're hearing from the Biden administration that the army didn't want to fight, that's really not accurate. What is the problem is that this army has been led by very poor, corrupt leadership, often propped up by the U.S., and uh, they're missing um, basic logistical supplies. The U.S. withdrawal also removed the support that kept their vehicles running, their air force flying. So without all of these things, it's very difficult for soldiers to hold out in isolated places where they would be surrounded by Taliban and they would run out of supplies. Many of them had no choice to fight. And when it comes to choosing to fight, what are you fighting for if your leadership is so corrupt they don't even give you money for food or uniforms? Security there now is of paramount importance and continuing extraction of Americans. So it seems like we're still in for a chaotic weekend. Jessica Donati, reporter at the Wall Street Journal and author of Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. On Monday, we found out that the FDA finally granted full approval to the COVID-19 vaccine made by Pfizer. With this approval... The hope is that some hesitant people might get their shots, but also that more businesses and local governments might start mandating them. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. I think one of the 
concerns that some people raised about the vaccines is they, you know, it wasn't fully, it didn't have full FDA approval. And, and so I think that maybe to them meant like it didn't have the full, I guess, kicking of the tires that a, an FDA approved product would. So this could help, I guess, reassure some individuals, but perhaps more powerfully, I think you might actually start seeing more companies and, and agencies institute vaccine mandates with a full approval, because now they can kind of point to this as like the final straw that they needed to institute a mandate. And already today, you're seeing that like a couple local agencies in New York and New Jersey, the military came out and said, with this FDA approval, they're going to require COVID-19 vaccines. So that's probably the bigger implication, right. in, just in terms of numbers of people. Yeah, I think it was San Francisco had already passed it basically saying we're waiting for the full approval and then boom, you, you know, you're going to have to be, the mandates are going to start coming there. So yeah, so that's kind of the biggest implication we're seeing out there. And, you know, just to anecdotally, just to share this, I, I work at a radio station as well. One of the morning shows did kind of this informal poll. Let's hear from listeners talking about, will you get the vaccine now that it's been fully approved? Not many people said yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't know how much it's going to move the needle on that front, but, you know, obviously that is the big hope. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the process that goes into it because even the full approval was fast-tracked and I don't want people to get scared away from it. Pfizer had to submit so much data to be considered for it to be fully approved that they had, they sent in some 340,000 pages for their approval application. I mean, there was a lot of data that went into it. Yeah. I mean, and the FDA was obviously hurrying because of the importance of this in this emergency, but like in terms of like what they did to expedite it, it was more just like putting more reviewers on or, you know, it wasn't like they cut corners or didn't go through their process right. or anything like that. And, you know, some people were kind of wondering why is the FDA taking so long in general to get full approval. And they basically like kind of had just like this is how the process goes. They had to wait for an additional six months of safety data. And so that, like you said, the EUA for Pfizer's vaccine, the first one in the United States came in um, December. And so they had to wait, you know, six months for data and then, you know, a couple months to collect and analyze and, and review it and, and make sure everything looks good. So they were, you know, moving expeditiously, but they were also, you know, there, there were sort of benchmarks that they had to right. hit, including that six months of, of additional safety data. And so that's why the approval came when it did. Who is covered in this full authorization? Because I know 12 to 15 year olds are still under emergency use authorization. Right. What's the breakdown on it? Yeah. So the full approval goes for people 16 and up. And again, that's just because that's the group that was under the original F uh, EUA, excuse me. And so that's why the FDA now has six months of additional safety data on that group. The EUA for the Pfizer vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds came later. So there hasn't been that six month follow up yet. So that's why there's this difference where the 12 to 15 year olds are still under EUA for the Pfizer vaccine, whereas 16 and above are part of this full approval. Now, obviously, the FDA is giving full approval for all of this, but they did say that there were some risks associated with this, some uh, risks of uh, two types of heart inflammation that mostly affected younger men. They're called myocarditis and pericarditis, and they're basically inflammation of, of different parts of the heart and the area around the heart. And, and health officials have been seeing this with both the mRNA vaccines for the past couple of months, like initially in Israel, where they rolled out vaccines really quickly. And then subsequently in other countries as well, including in the U.S. And so this has been on their radar for a while. And actually, like, uh, I can't remember, it was maybe a month or two ago, they added the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis to the sort of information prescribers get for who give out vaccines and also people get when they receive their vaccines for both Pfizer and Moderna. But like you said, so far, it appears to be most common within about a week of people's second shot, because these are two dose regimens. 
and like the risk is highest for men under 40 compared to older men or women overall. And then it's the risk is per, like the highest risk is among 12 to 17 year olds. And I should be clear that like, there's a risk and they've seen this and it appears to be a rare side effect. But it's again, it's very rare. And most cases appear to have been mild and sort of resolved on their own. And what experts would also tell you is that myocarditis and pericarditis, there are a lot of different causes, but a common one is a viral infection. And the rates of both appear to be much higher after a COVID-19 infection than from these vaccines. What's next then for all the vaccines? We're still waiting for Moderna to get their full approval. That'll take a little bit of time. And then beyond that, uh, even for Pfizer, the next step for them is more data on younger kids, right? So that they can get the full authorizations there. The big question really seems to be, when the vaccines are going to be authorized for kids under 12. And that's obviously very pressing with school starting. What the FDA said is that they're just still waiting on clinical trial data from, you know, these these trials aren't going, so they have to wait for the companies to gather data and then submit them to the agency for review. And so they can't like put a certain time frame on when they're going to authorize this. And what they what they really specify is that like they need these studies to be done in kids because kids are different. They're, as, as Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner of the FDA said today, they're not just small adults. So they w- want to make sure they have the same, like a, they want to make sure they understand the safety profile in kids. And they also want to make sure they have a correct dose to see if they, you know, they can use a smaller dose in kids, for example. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Following that FDA approval for Pfizer, we saw Delta Airlines up its game in the vaccine pressure campaign. Stopping short of a mandate, they said that unvaccinated employees will have their health insurance premiums increased by $200 a month, citing the high cost of treating employees who have been hospitalized, averaging out to $50,000 per person. For more on this, we'll speak to Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. So this is kind of unusual amongst airlines and even amongst big U.S. corporations. And it is something that HR consultants say that we could see more of soon. Delta, the CEO, said today that it costs the company $50,000 when an employee is hospitalized. This is a a self-funded insurance program that Delta has. So starting November 1st, they're saying that unvaccinated workers are going to have to pay $200 more in their health insurance premiums. So that's a, a pretty big monthly charge for people who are unvaccinated. There are also other measures that Delta announced today. There are immediate masking. If you are unvaccinated in any indoor uh, Delta space, headquarters or otherwise, and you're going to have to start in September taking regular COVID tests weekly if you are unvaccinated. And then also if you catch COVID and you're not vaccinated starting uh, late September, you're going to have to use your sick days for that. Whereas before Delta was uh, pay protecting everybody. Yeah, that's an interesting one right there. Uh, you know, my company as well, iHeartMedia, offers some of that pay protection as well. You get COVID, you don't have to use sick days. There's special sick supplemental pay set aside for that. But that's an interesting one too. Like I said, part of the pressure campaign almost because they're shop- stopping pretty short of a mandate, but, you know, everything is pushing you into that. So yeah, you'll have to start using your own personal sick days at that point. And, mm-hmm. and you did note it in the article, this was a change in approach by Delta, not by United Healthcare, who who runs their their health insurance plans. That's right. Yeah, this is a Delta initiative. And, and like you mentioned, Delta did stop short of this mandate. And we've seen this in other companies, too. It's kind of like, do you use the carrot or the stick? And Delta has been offering uh, you know, extra pay or time off. And we see that at American Airlines as well. But now they're kind of putting the, the cost onto the employee to urge as many people as possible to be 
be vaccinated. And we should know that Delta has about 75,000 employees, uh, CEO Ed Bastian saying today about three quarters of them are vaccinated. So they want to get to 100 percent. This is this is an industry that is so dependent on this virus going away or at least cases falling so that business travel comes back. We see leisure travel at, you know, the levels we were at in 2019 and their their financial security pretty much depends on it. Yeah, that 75 percent, though, is actually a pretty good vaccination rate there. So, yeah, just need Mm -hmm. to get over, you know, just a little bit more. What else does the landscape look like with the airlines? Who is mandating stuff? Who's going kind of this Delta route? Yeah, we are seeing a split amongst airlines. Uh, United Airlines was the first one to come out earlier this month and mandate vaccines for its entire U.S. workforce, about 68,000 people. And the way that's going to work is it's going to be the way they set it up was five weeks after the FAA gives full approval to one of the vaccines, which, of course, they did this week with the Pfizer vaccine. So that puts it at uh, September 27th. And it's a very strict mandate. They say you're going to you could face termination if you don't get this vaccine. There are exceptions for religious and medical reasons, but it is an extremely strict mandate. We have seen Hawaiian Airlines also is going to be mandating vaccines. Alaska Airlines is thinking about it. And they told employees that earlier this month, and they said it it would only happen after the FDA made the step that it, it took on Monday, giving full approval to one of the vaccines. And Frontier Airlines kind of is in the middle. They are saying that you have to get vaccinated. And if you don't, if you choose to, so you can still elect whether to get it or not, you will have to have a regular COVID test. We have not seen American Airlines, which is offering, you know, extra pay or time off for employees to get vaccinated, you know, extra vacation day next year, for example, or Southwest. And we have heard from a lot of pilot unions, including at Delta, that they want to keep it voluntary. So I think airlines are also weighing what are the reactions going to be from some of our our critical employees. Yeah. And and that was my next question. So we've seen pushback from the pilots union. Have we seen it in other areas or has it been kind of relegated to that for the most part? We have heard it from one of the unions at United, the IAM that represents the ramp and and customer service workers. They had told us uh, last week that there is some hesitance amongst some of their members uh, to get vaccinated. Some have threatened to quit. Time will tell if this happens on September 27th by the by the time of the deadline. But the union also told us United is within their legal rights and there there isn't really a legal challenge that they could mount to this, even though some of the members might be asking them to sue the companies. So their hands are tied in, in that regard. Well, this is all a push to, uh, you know, obviously for Delta not to spend so much money if their employees do get hospitalized, but also to keep everybody healthier and safe, uh, you know, even for the passengers themselves. They've extended that mask wearing deadline. It was supposed to expire in September. How long did they extend it to now? So the uh, CSA or the Biden administration as a whole really has extended that mask mandate. September uh, 14th was going to be when it was listed. And now it's going to be the middle of January. I believe it's the 18th of January. So we're going to, you know, if you're flying during the holidays, you're going to have to wear a mask on a plane. And and that's not much of a surprise. And just looking at the case numbers of COVID. So it doesn't look like that's something that's going to be listed. But the airline's they want their employees to be vaccinated so that when demand continues to tick up, they don't have staffing shortages. I mean, those are things that we've seen over the summer. So it's, you know, add staffing shortages, add to that the potential for your workers to get severe COVID. You know, and that's that's yeah. a, a worry amongst the executives for sure. Leslie Josephs, yeah. airline reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. 
Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.